Hello and welcome to Ernie Ball's Striking a Chord podcast. I'm Evan Ball. Today I'll be speaking with none other than Cliff Williams of ACDC. In this episode, Cliff Williams, bassist of ACDC, discusses his musical background before joining the band in 1977. He talks about the early days when he joined ACDC, as well as the present day with the release of their new album. And he recalls some career highlights in between. Also, given that this is an Ernie Ball podcast, we get into some bass talk, specifically around his music man bass that's been his number one through his decades-long career with ACDC. And on that note, Cliff's interview is actually followed by a bonus interview with Ernie Ball Music Man engineer Blair Writings, who has spearheaded the project to recreate Cliff's bass. And we're releasing a very limited run that will be available to the public. So stay tuned for a behind-the-scenes look at the process of recreating Cliff's iconic bass from the 1970s. All right, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Cliff Williams. Cliff Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Evan. Yeah, our pleasure. So, of course, I want to talk about the release of your bass and the new album. But first, I'd love to dig into a little bit of your history. What did your musical career look like prior to joining ACDC? Uh, I'll give you a quick rundown. I started playing at about 13 years old. Uh, Let's call it 16. Was full-time playing in a band, 17 years old. Uh, That was called Home. It was that early. You were only 17 when you joined home? Yeah, yeah. Well, my buddy and I, Laurie Wisefield, who played with Wishbone Ash, he went on to join Wishbone Ash, and he's played back up for a bunch of people. Uh, We started the band, and um, we had about three albums out, lasted a few years. I think we broke up. I've got some notes here, so excuse me looking up. Sure. Uh, Home broke up in 74. We had three albums out. So we did some touring. We... uh, we got a little bit of a noise going in Europe. It was it was pretty good. Uh, the band broke up '74. Then I went on to to uh, join a band called Bandit, uh, which lasted until about '77. That that with me in the band had one album. I think they went on to make another one, and that fell apart. And, and I, so that brings me up to ACDC in '77. '77 is the marker there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, before we get there, Home actually opened up for a number of. Big artists, correct? Yeah, we opened up for Zeppelin, uh, Stone the Crows, uh, quite a few over the years. So, so to start your professional music career, did you move to London with the intent of of starting a career? Or did you already have something in the works when you moved? Uh, we moved back to London. I, I was born in London. Then my my dad's job took us to Liverpool, uh, and I stayed there until uh, and the people that I I had a little group there which uh, went back down to London because there was more work for a new band down there and um, pretty quickly fell apart. And that's when I met Laurie Wisefield. So I was in London at that time and we put home together. Okay. So you moved from Liverpool with your band to London, the band that you were... I had a, a very starter band. Uh, I don't know. I don't kind of remember the name of them. Uh. I can, but I'm not going to tell you because it was terrible. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, London, Liverpool, back to London to start at home. Okay. Do you happen to support a, a soccer team, Everton or Liverpool I mean, I mean, or London? Soccer thing. I don't, I don't you know, I, it's weird. Everyone in my school did and everyone in England, uh, big soccer fans. I just never got to it. 
Yeah. Okay. Just checking. So you make the move to London. Are you 16, 17? 17. 17 years old. Okay. So let's move forward to ACDC. Do you remember the first time you ever heard of ACDC or heard the music? Uh, I, I do. They, they were on a TV show, like, a I don't know, a Top of the Pops or something like that. I can't okay. um, TV show and they caught my attention because they looked like they were having a lot of fun. So, uh, and I mean, they definitely looked different. And I'd heard about, they were playing in pubs and stuff around in London at that time. And uh, some friends of mine, um, other musicians, had, had seen them in, a, in one pub in, I can't remember the name of it now, uh, had seen them and said, oh, this band's wild. So, so your first uh, recollection is actually seeing them visually on TV. Right. And, and it, it was, uh, the visual seemed, sounds like it's, it's what, what stood out to you. Yeah, it, it really was. It was so different from anything else. Yeah. Because in those days, there was a lot of glam bands and stuff, you know. And all that. Yeah. This was definitely not one of those. So can you expand on how they differed from other bands of the time? Was it energy? Was it attitude? Definitely energy, but just, um, just completely their own thing. I mean, it was, and apparently Mal said when he started the band with Angus, he said, We've got to, there's a big hole here that no one's filling. Let's go do it. What was your first impression meeting the band? They were fine. I mean, I got to go to audition several times, and they were real friendly and open. Yeah, they were they were great. I had a strange accent, but they. <laughs> you have a few different accents in this band, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got Geordie and Brian and Phil. Uh, well, he's in New Zealand now, but I'm Aussie. Yeah. And uh, Angus and Malcolm at the time still had a Scottish twang a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So what's the setting when you first meet them? Is this in England or is it in Australia? Yeah, it was in London. Uh, it was in a rehearsal room. And, uh, God, again, God knows where it was. I can't remember. It's so long ago. Uh, I got a call from a buddy of mine. I was in between bands at the time, right? You know, so I was not the, that group that I was with Bandit had, had gone on. I'd gotten out of there. And this buddy said, this, that I guess my name had come up to them and they were looking for, ba- for bass players. Uh, so I got a call if I wanted to go down and audition, which, which I did. So that's, that's where I first met them, was in London. Were there any, any certain characters in the band that stood out or made an, more of an impression or was it pretty low-key? Um, I can't say it was low-keyed. You know, okay. Again, everyone was friendly, but uh, it was just... Um, Playing with them was immediately fun. Yeah. It was, a, you know, this is, it's always been a great band to play with, you know, but, but it was instantly a lot of fun. I bet. Uh, the manager actually got me some albums to listen to and bone up on because I didn't really, you know, I'd seen the one song on, uh, on the TV. I think it was Jailbreak, it was called. Uh, and, but I didn't really know their music. So the first audition I went along seemed to go okay. The manager, called me, got me a bunch of albums to go listen to, which I did when I did my homework. So when I came back next time, I knew a few more songs. Yeah. And you must have been impressively seasoned at this point, because if my math's right, you probably have about 10 years of professional experience under your belt by the time you try out. I did, yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Is the band's home base in London at this point, or is it still in Australia? Or was there such thing as a home base? They were in London to look for a bass player. They knew all the bass players in Australia. And it was, uh, you know, no disrespect to any bass players in Australia, but they knew everyone there. And they thought they would test the waters in, in London and thought I have a, a greater pool to draw from. 
So they were staying in London. They weren't really based anywhere. I mean, when I joined the band, I joined, and then I didn't really, we, we were on the road all the time. We were in the studio to make an album, and then on the road playing it wherever we could to promote it. So Yeah, okay. All right, well, let's, let's talk about bass a little bit. How did you come to play a Music Man bass? Maladan's older brother, George, uh, he was in a band called the Easy Beats. You, you, I'm sure you've heard of them. Yeah. And, uh, and he got a hold of one. Um, we were in Australia, and he let me try it. And uh, it was, it was that's, that was my first introduction, was through George. What year was that, roughly? Would have been 70, late 77, early 78, something like that. Okay. Was George Young more of a bassist or a guitarist? No, he was a guitarist, actually. Okay. He just happened to have been a really good bass player as well. Yeah. Okay. So he had this bass, though. He had the bass. He had a okay. Mocha Brown one. Yeah. And then, uh, so you tried it out. Did it feel comfortable early on? or? Oh, I was impressed. Uh, um, I had a, a, a Gibson Ripper for about five minutes. I tried that one. Loved it. I had a P bass as well. Which I, and that was my main bass with ACDC to start with. Mm-hmm. And then when I could afford it in 79, I got my number one music man. 79, you got that. Okay. And I'll just give a little context to our listeners. So Ernie Ball Music Man has recreated that Stingray bass that you just referred to and have been playing for decades and is releasing a very limited run, like only 26 of them. So I want to dig into that topic a bit. Obviously, through the years, you've owned or played many different basses, but through it all, this bass has remained your number one. Yeah. Can you explain why this particular one has retained that number one spot? Well, it was the first one I had. Sure. And it, it, it did and still does do everything I could want it to do. I, I, and I just, you know, it's just like I had that and I had the P basses uh, back up and then I could afford a second music. Man, I got that. But I just stuck with that one. So many subtleties that can be hard to pinpoint, but there does seem to be something to just growing a bond to an instrument that you've yeah. spent so much time with. You just get it. Yeah. There's a thousand details that go into recreating a, a specific bass that was built decades ago and has weathered many storms. So a very healthy dose of attention to detail has, has gone into this. Are there any particular features or markers that you associate with this specific bass? Well, you've done such a great job of like the cosmetics are incredible. You know, the buckle rash, the whole bit, even, even down to the felt tip marker to roll off some top right. on, on Rebel Pot. You know, it's it's spot on. The feel, the weight, uh, everything, the electronics, I think you copied. Yeah, recreating that specific pickup, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but uh, the little felt tip mark gets me a lot. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so to dive into that a little, you marked that with a Sharpie on the treble yeah. knob, right? And the treble uh, and, a, and a correspondent on the plate little silver plate there. So you can line them up. I knew exactly where I wanted it. I was wondering, is that still the mark you use? Because I was thinking you could have done that 20 years ago and then changed your EQ preference at some point later. It's been there. As soon as I figured out what it, where, I, where it needed to be, I marked it and it stayed there since. Still in the right spot. Okay. Yeah, there's so many uh, minor differences you wouldn't even think of. A thinner headstock, uh, slightly different dot spacing on the fretboard. Slightly different string through hole location, uh, even just focusing on one small thing like the neck plate. So it's a three bolt neck. You have a little micro tilt 
access point in there. The screws they had to use, uh, and I thought it was really cool. They were able to locate the original Music Man logo stamp. Yeah, that's cool. for that for that neck plate. Yeah, very cool base. So uh, yeah, props to you and the engineering team, especially uh, Blair Ridings, uh-huh. who spearheaded the process. Yeah. Yes, well done. Fantastic. Hey, as going back even further, as a kid, were you drawn to the bass over guitar or drums, or how was it that you came to play bass? Yeah, it, it was. Well, I was an opening in, in the school band for a bass player, so I because I started on guitar. But uh, but it, I was walking past a, a it, it must have been a youth club or something on a Sunday afternoon, and I was just a little kid at the time. Uh, but there was, um, was Stax or Tamla Motown music playing. And I, the bass, you know, tra- bass travels the sound. And it stopped me in my tracks. I was listening to it and thinking, my God, that's, that sounds fantastic. And that's how, that's how it caught my attention f- first. And then again, as I say, there was an opening for a bass player in my, you know, everyone. It was 61, 62, the Beatles, the Stones. Everyone in, in my school was wanting to be in a band. And I was no different, so that was that's when I went there. Did they have a guitar opening also at this band? Uh, I, I can't remember. Who knows? I can't remember. No. They had two guitar players and a drummer and a singer. Okay. And I think they call, we, we, we called ourselves the Cubans, like the Cuban heels on the Beatle boots. All right. That's great. So let's get to the present uh, and the future. So ACDC has uh, been creating music now for more than four decades. I'd imagine it must feel incredibly familiar being in the studio together. Yeah. What's the atmosphere like when you're all recording an album? This last one you talked about? Or anyway. Or in general or both? It, it can range from like frustrating as all hell to fantastic. And the frustrating as, of, as all hell is when you're, you've got a situation where the your produce, producer will get you to play it over and over and over. Now that wasn't right. But what, what, what? No, I just want to do it again. <laughs> and you get to like take 58 and you've played it into the ground and it's dead and there's no, you know, I mean, it's just awful. That's not good. And now, and we've had, um, and in saying that, we've had producers that's done a lot of takes. Mark Lang, fantastic producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, that was a pleasure. But there's some of, and I won't mention any names, but then the last, uh, Brendan, Brendan O'Brien, the, he's done the last three albums with us. He just keeps it moving right along. And it's a very positive uh, way to work. Uh, there's no like load sitting around, you know, whatever. Uh, so uh, so in, in those situations, it's a, it's a total joy to be in the studio. Um, I like to play, I don't really care for, the recording process that much um you know i, I mean i enjoy it, the, the hearing it come together and all that but i um i, I prefer the, the live aspect of it okay but it's always i mean it was, this last one was great to do it was really good yeah we had the boys back right when you think back to 2016 did you think this was even a possibility or did you really think that was no. the end of acdc for you well, not to, it was it was my end of ACD with ACDC. I just got right. to the point where, where I just thought for me it was time to hang it up, right. uh, and I was fine with that. You know, I was fine with that. So, uh, I didn't know what the guys were going to do. Mm. I, I, I had no idea. I don't know that they did. Uh, um, that was a, a, a tough tour to, to finish up that one. Right. How do you guys normally record? Do you do you track together, or do you lay down drums first, or scratch tracks? Do you have a? a, a... We'll always we'll always go. We we'll always play together. Okay. Um, 
uh, I mean, the ideal thing would be hit to take, do it, it's good, it's done, you know, but that's not often the case. You've got a good bed drum track, and then you can build upon that. So you're playing together to grab that drum track? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then do you ever keep those original guitars and basses? If there's something good in there, yeah. But, sure. but not, okay. I mean, now with, you know, with, now with uh, Pro Tools and all the rest of it, I mean, it's so easy to get a bunch of tracks together and just take the best out of it. Sure. Do you have a favorite song on this album? I got two. Uh, and it's Demon Fire and Wild Reputation. Okay. Because uh, we, we rehearsed earlier this year and played those songs and they just came out really well. Great. I like the others on another day, but you know. Sure, today. right. That's how it works. And for our listeners, we're recording this interview prior to the album coming out. So when this is released, I think it will be out for maybe a week or a few days. So FYI, I have not heard the album. Is there a tour planned for the future? No, there's not. I mean, no one's touring right now. There's nothing... When we did our get-together in January uh, and we shot a video and rehearsed for about two, three weeks just to see how it was, and it came up really well. Uh, at the end of that, we sat around and talked about doing a few shows, and that was as far as it got. We all wanted to do that, but we can't book anything. I mean, we all went home at that point. Yeah, it's going to be fun to do a few gigs. Uh, and then, you know, the world went upside down for everybody. So right now, there's nothing planned. If we can do it next year, we will. Yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't say anything planned, but any aspirations for a tour? Yeah. How about a tour? We talked about a few shows. Okay, a few shows, right. Yeah. And you you did just mention you prefer the live aspect more than studio. Do you you like the touring or do you like the... What is it about it? The playing with the guys. I mean, it's it's just a, a great band to play with. And now we, you know, we've got Phil back. No disrespect yeah. to Chris. Phil's the man. Uh, Angus and Brian, you know, and Stevie's doing a great job. So this is as close as we could get to the old band. Fantastic, yeah. Are there certain events or eras from the band's history that you look back on most fondly? I think when the Highway to Hell album charted in the sort of mainstream rock charts in America, uh, I think it, it, the highest it got was 47, but for us that was huge. So we had a day off and we went and hit the beach and it was kind of like a euphoric feeling. I think that was a lot to do with alcohol at the time. But uh, it was just a, a that, that was a great time. Uh, we did one show in Moscow and that was kind of cool. It was just wildly different. Uh, yeah. How was it different? Well, when, when the Russian Air Force come over in those Anatovs or Antonovs or whatever, and the, the nose cone comes up, you see the trucks going in and they fly off. And the show was supposed to be in Red Square initially. And it end up, ended up in some abandoned airfield on the outskirts of uh, Moscow. Uh, they reckon there was like over 500,000 people there. They couldn't count it because there were, no, they didn't have any money, but people came from everywhere. It was a free concert for them. Uh, so that was wildly different <laughs> when you get out there and you can't see anything but people it was amazing what year was that 91 wow okay wow that's crazy is there is there video online of that do you know i don't know if there is i've not seen it yeah oh yeah well i think time warner filmed it but i've never seen i've never seen footage of it all right well this has been great cliff williams i can't wait to hear the new album and thanks again for your time 
Pleasure. Thank you very much. You take care. Thank you for this fabulous place. Our pleasure. All right. We have a nice addendum to this episode. Here's my interview with Ernie Ball Music Man engineer, Blair Ridings, discussing the story of recreating Cliff Williams' favorite bass. Blair Ridings, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Evan. Of course. So Cliff Williams of ACDC has had this bass since 1979. And uh, our company, Ernie Ball Music Man, has endeavored to recreate his exact bass not just the model, but his particular bass that's got tons of miles on it. So the bass that we're releasing is, quote, relict or is a relic bass. Can you explain what that means? Sure. Yeah. Relic, it seems to be kind of an industry term that uh, really the guitar industry, I think, picked up. Um, I've heard of distressing and degrading other things, other terms for what it is, but it's basically making an item look as if it has uh, you know a lot of miles on it a lot of age a lot of history and soul you know it's been done in in many industries and even me and my buddies messing with old cars and bikes and things we'll we'll throw a little patina on it if you will but uh, I really like the term relic I think it uh, has a little more you know soul if you will um, kind of built into the name and Really, it's just about... Um, Making a brand new instrument look old. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> that, that was a little crass. Yeah, no, that's, that's truly what it is. I'm dolling it up right now, but yeah. It's definitely easier to make old things look new rather than make new things look old. And that is especially true with guitars. I've, I've been having to learn, but it's been a lot of fun. You're relicking each bass by hand, so... No correct. two will be exactly the same, but pretty darn close. That's correct. Yeah. And that was one of the most difficult uh, endeavors about the whole project is how to recreate this multiple times um, and to have a full production run of something like this. You know, we could have spent years and years making one and just kept going and going and going. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of back and forth between our team and uh, Cliff and his team as well on what uh, he felt was satisfactory. And luckily we were able to hit that, which is awesome. So yeah, Cliff mentioned in the, our interview, the the Sharpie mark on the knob, that was your handiwork, correct? <laughs> it was. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought that was a really cool feature. Um, and we went, uh, we went pretty deep into that. It was um, Dudley Gimple and I working on the uh, electronics package, the pickup and the old preamp. And that is, you know, it was clearly a sign of Cliff's favorite tonal position with his treble knob. So we created that, recreated that exactly on each base uh, by measuring that potentiometer and marking it accordingly. Do you get nervous taking a Sharpie to an expensive instrument? I guess it's just the knob. That's a little less pressure. Yeah, you know, I was, oh, there were plenty of times throughout the process on each instrument that... Uh, I get nervous. That being one of them, you know, you know, double, triple check, measure twice, cut once, sort of deal. Yeah, I mean, often you're you're actually digging into that finish, right, to to mimic the the wear spots that he's accumulated over decades. Correct, correct. Yeah, and to elaborate a little more on um, the relicking process, um, you know, when we set out to do this, we were very aware of the market, and we had talked about doing projects like these for years, and you know 
it's one of those things that very few people are in between on the relic market. It's either you love it or you hate it. You know, mm. we'd seen products over the years that um, some of them look great, very authentic and genuine, and others look very cheesy. You know, so we wanted to make sure to make it as authentic and genuine as possible. And our techniques with relicking really the best way for us to perfectly mimic or, you know, best mimic each component and little piece of corrosion degradation was to really make each component go through the true process of each experience throughout its life. So instead of masking off parts of the body and then painting it, we actually painted the entire body and then scraped down or sanded down or rubbed down the areas that uh, were showing signs of wear, you know, where there's exposed wood. If we tried to just tape it off and paint it, it just turned out really cheesy and it really didn't reflect the true life experience of that part. Um, that, that goes for the metal components as well. You know, we um, machined them and then plated them entirely and then stripped them down and then corroded them. So the long and the short of it is we didn't take any shortcuts because ultimately it didn't look good enough for us. So that was really a fun part of, um, well, it was actually, it was a rude awakening with many of these parts that we had to do it that way. But, yeah. but um, it, made, it made us all feel better about um, the instrument as a whole. Yeah. So the Stingray bass in general, uh, with its pickup and active electronics, is known for having uh, a fairly iconic and identifiable electric bass sound. How would you describe the specific Stingray pickup that we emulated in Cliff's bass? Because I think you can have this general Stingray bass sound, but there's still room for some variance within that sound. Absolutely. The pickup was an especially interesting part of the R&D process with this instrument. Um, this is these pickups were made back in a time where there wasn't as much automation with any any part of the manufacturing, the electronics included. So the pickups of that era were actually the wire feeding onto the bobbin to get the number of coils. It was all done by hand um, back then, and so each one had a little bit of variance. And I remember Dudley and I going back and forth on we would really have to trick our automated machines that, that wrap these pickups into using the correct pitch and number of windings and all sorts of uh, little idiosyncrasies with the machine to best mimic a more manual process. Uh, and so that was really interesting. One very cool history about this base is that we measured other pickups from around that era and Cliff's bass, uh, specifically his pickup specifically, had a lot more windings than most of them had. Um, Are you comparing to other Stingrays or just basses in that era? Oh, no, other Stingrays of that era. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that is one of the key significant features that set that era of Stingrays apart was these... Um, these pickups, especially, they use one inch long, three eighths diameter Alnico five magnets. Uh, they're wound with large gauge wire, and each one, you know, back in the day, just like every part of those guitars, was really um, done by hand. And each one was a little bit different than the one that you know came down the assembly line right after it. 
Right. So Cliff's pickup especially had more windings than most, but really all of the other pickups that we had tested from that era. You know, we have a few in our stash from back in that time. And that creates a very fat, high output sound compared to even others of the very same make, model, you know, size, era. Right. Stingray. Uh, so you you spearheaded this project. You mentioned Dudley, and that's just to flesh that out. That's Dudley Gimple. Correct. So do you guys work in tandem in certain certain phases of it? We absolutely did. Really, I I turned to Dudley for really everything. You know, Dudley and I both have an affinity for older machines, older instruments, older cars, older bikes uh, of all types. So we would be talking about that constantly. But especially with this, he showed me some very, very cool tricks. Um, we call him the genius here, if no one else knew that. And it's because he, he truly is. He's amazing. And so... I worked in tandem with him really on each each little piece and component because he's a true historian of this company. And he had some very, very cool tricks about how to identify what the exact finish was, what was exactly going on with the electronics, uh, the woods, even uh, the pieces on the base that are very corroded. And it's hard to tell what type of plating is really on there. He he knew bases of that era and he was able to test for that as well, whether it was chrome plating, nickel plating, you know, on and on. That's great. And the timing works out. He just retired recently. So this, this was just prior to the retirement, right? It was, it was. And that was, that was really special to work with him on this project uh, right before he retired here. And so it was a very cool down trip down memory lane with him. Uh, We were scouring our old, um, warehouse that we call the Wayback here uh, for old, you know, new old stock parts that we actually used on this base. You know, going through the old truss rod design, the old bullet nut on the headstock, and yeah, that was going to be my next question. Actually, was because naturally hardware used on instruments changes over decades. So I was going to ask, how did you go about recreating a base with hardware that was used in the seventies? Absolutely, that was actually I would argue probably the trickiest part of the entire process in terms of really availability. Um, so to give like a little background on that, back in the back in the seventies and prior, nickel plated steel hardware was very much the norm, uh, whereas now it's more chrome and stainless. And you know, stainless steel was pretty exotic back in those days. You couldn't go to like Ace Hardware and find a big stainless steel section of of fasteners and things like that. What they would have back then is nickel plated steel fasteners. I was kind of at the ready. Whereas nowadays it's not, not so much. There's uh, cadmium plating, there's zinc plating, there's chrome plating, of course. Um, And this base has some plenty of chrome on it, but you know, the little screws and intonation pieces, the springs, the uh, thumb screws on the bridge, those were all nickel plated steel that we in production here now use mostly stainless for because it's, um, it's easier. It's one less process. You don't have to plate it. It's strong. It's more available. Yeah. Yeah. It was very interesting because the process really for a lot of these fasteners was we had to order them in black oxide or zinc plating and then actually have them stripped of their plating, replated in nickel and then start the degradation process. Oh, wow. Which was, you know, a little tedious, but also very neat and cool to learn about. Um, Learned a lot about uh, hardware in general and and the processes that it goes through and, and why. So that was that was also very, very cool to me. So pretty 
laborious process if you have to basically create these parts. Were there some parts that you were able just to find? There were, but very few. I'll start with the the new old stock parts that we had actually on our way back. And these were, these were, um, you know, it was very hard to tell the actual true era of when these parts were made. It looks like they were very early Ernie Ball music man days, you know, um, 84 through 87 ish. Uh, so we had, we found parts, uh, such as the bullet, um, of the truss rod up at the headstock, the chrome plated hardened steel washer that goes behind that, that the bullet acts on and the truss rods themselves, uh, were also back there. So that was really neat to find those. And then other parts there, you know, I scoured all parts and all the normal places. I think I was able to find nickel plated steel number eight neck mounting screws uh, just right off the shelf. Also specific to guitars, you know, that was the only reason I could find that. But other than that, it really all had to be custom ordered, made by hand um, and go through the whole process. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I would think a big part of the relic process is the paint. It's a big part of the outer appearance. How did you get the finish to look like it's from the 70s? Sure. So that was another uh, very tricky part. And yeah, I love how each topic you bring up, I keep thinking, oh, that was the trickiest part. But I, <laughs> you know, I, would, I would probably have to say that ultimately the finish was extremely difficult because... It's, uh, it's like anything else in finishing, um, especially with finishing wood, it's very difficult to know exactly what you're working with. And then if you need to mimic uh, an exact guitar, you really need to know exactly what's going on. So a little background on that is uh, nitrocellulose lacquer. This was, I'll give you the, I don't want to misspeak here, but I believe it was a product that was uh, manufactured by DuPont originally and you know back in the 50s and it turned out to be this really great and efficient paint for all types of industries uh, automobile industry guitars etc so we often hear nitro finish I don't know if that's specific to the guitar industry yeah nitro finish that's exactly what it is so nitro is just short for nitrocellulose lacquer um, and then you'll hear lacquer and uh, nitro and things like that now, many, you know, lacquer is an, another term that's, that's uh, thrown around loosely all the time just to describe paint, but it is a specific type of paint. And then nitrocellulose lacquer is a specific type of lacquer. So it's, it's a very interesting chemical composition because it's very different than a lot of the paints we use nowadays where, you know, modern day paints are usually a two-part system where you add a uh, catalyst to it to actually change the mechanical properties of the paint. And so it creates just a nice, very robust um, paint shell around whatever you're painting. Whereas nitro is, it's very organic materials. You know, it's made out of bugs and bug guts and dirt and things for the pigment of the color. And then it's added to kind of this base substance that is added on. And then just uh, really surrounded by all these really nasty solvents like toluene and acetone and xylene and, and on and on. You know, I'm, I'm no chemist, but I had to learn quite a bit about it. And so the final, the final point I will make is that uh, on nitro is that once the, once you spray it, these solvents evaporate and you're just left with this solidified base material of whatever's left over. And it's very brittle. Um, so any wood movement or temperature variations, humidity can definitely affect it and cause it to crack 
very easily or check, as they say, checking. Um, nitrocellulose lacquer checking is another hot term in guitars, especially because you just see it. You see it on a lot of the old guitars. And even if you look at uh, old cars of that era, if they still have the original paint, you will see the same um, phenomenon. Some people see it as a, a blemish. Other people see it as a very cool feature that uh, speaks to the age of their instrument. Character. Yeah. And so it, it checks or cracks in sort of a pattern, right? It does. It does. And so there's a few, there's a few techniques involved in making this happen. A, a very easy one for the DIY guy at home in his garage is you just get like a heat gun and a can of dust off. And if you turn dust off upside down and spray it, it sprays out extremely cold. And so it's all about uh, messing with the temperature variations in terms of the most drastic uh, effects that it gives and why that is because the paint and the wood are expanding and contracting at different rates and the paint can't keep up. And so then it cracks. So when you do kind of the heat gun and dust off method or compressed air, it's very drastic. It's not really the natural process. It creates a very spider webby look that um, ultimately can look kind of cheesy and kind of fake. Sometimes it can look cool, but this base, you know, Cliff's, Cliff's base, it obviously went through the natural process and that was just not um, getting us the results that we wanted. So this was where, this is another moment where Dudley came in with a, another genius idea. You know, we were thinking about it and he said, well, this, when it happens to my guitars, it's when I've left it in my trunk on a, on a cold night and I forgot to bring it out and I get it out the next morning and there's a bunch of uh, checking cracks on it. So he said, why don't we try throwing them in a freezer for the night and then bringing them out. And so we tried that with the bodies alone originally, and that went pretty well, but it was still sporadic. And the pattern of the cracking, predominantly the cracking was happening per perpendicular to the neck center line or the guitar center line. And why that is, and this is where Dudley's you know, brain came in again. He said, you know what, let's put a neck on those bodies with some strings on there and get some string tension on it and let's try it again. And that worked great. And the reason why is because it cups the body uh, with that string tension in that plane to propagate the checking cracks in the correct directions. And so that was really a godsend as far as making it look as genuine as possible. So did that shift the cracking to, to go vertical or, or, or parallel with the neck? Um, it shifted the cracking to go perpendicular to the neck. Yes, it did. Okay. Yeah. Um, which was, which was ideal. And, you know, also Evan, after you study it for quite a while, you can tell when people, uh, razor blade these check marks in some people are extreme. Oh, really? Yeah. Some people I can tell now by looking at it and some people are extremely, extremely good and talented at doing this far more than I am. But I will say that, you know, as, as human nature, it's very hard for us to draw truly random patterns that happen in nature. Um, so you, you can look at it and kind of pick up on, you know, where they've gotten into those repetitive, you know, patterns of their razor blade with their hand. Whereas if you see one that's truly checked because of um, its natural process, you know, temperature or humidity variation. It's much more sporadic and random and uh, just true to what's really going on. 
there's also many variations of lacquer paint. Uh, there's plasticizers that you can add to it. There's articles upon articles of back in the day, all the little tricks that they used to use because it's a very temperamental paint. Sometimes you got to add little things in there and each company has their tricks and, um, and we found our own, but it's, uh, it's as period correct as we could possibly come up with. Very yeah. impressive. Yeah. Such a cool project. Thank you, man. When you, when you first looked at Cliff's base, did it seem like an impossible task to recreate? <laughs> it certainly did. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I am personally a huge ACDC fan and, um, Others that were involved with me from the beginning and in, in taking this project on were in the same boat. So our original thought was like, I don't care what it takes. We're going to make this happen. This is awesome. You know, like, this is great. And then it came time to <laughs> actually do it. <laughs> it was um, a little, a little daunting. Definitely. Uh, it was, uh, it's a long process. This has really been my main focus here for the last two years pretty much solely focused on this project. And that's really what it took. It took that much time. And the Ball family was extremely cool in allowing me to kind of isolate myself and go in my little my little cave and just keep trying things out and, in order to make this as, um, as good as we possibly could. Yeah. Well, I, I love allowing people to see just a little glimpse into what goes behind creating something like this, recreating an instrument. It's... Uh, a thousand, probably more details. Exactly. And um, it was a very cool history lesson for me, um, for guitars in general, as well as Music Man as a company. And I just feel so privileged to have worked on, uh, you know, this instrument specifically for, for this guy and this band and, um, and this company. Blair Writings, thanks for your insights. Super interesting process. Well done to you and all the team, the whole team. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It was not just me. And, and thank you so much, Evan. Um, I hope that uh, everyone enjoys these as much as I've enjoyed working on them. Thanks for tuning in to Ernie Ball's Striking a Chord podcast. Go check out Cliff's Bass and, of course, ACDC's album Power Up. If you'd like to contact us, please email strikingacord at ernieball.com. Uh, you obviously have the original, but are you going to take any of these new ones home? I'd like to get a couple. I've got the prototype here, yeah, but I'd like to get a couple more. <laughs>